Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because, baby, we can do it. Take the time, do it right. We can do it, baby. Do it tonight. But regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh, hell yeah, my thickies. Welcome to the show, everyone. Recording this week at Thickness Central. Quick reminder, make sure you follow us on Twitch to watch us play games like Marvel's Avengers and pretty soon Batman Arkham Knight after the Avengers expansion is done. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes. Lots of this show will be dropping over the next few days, so subscribe to the Twisted Cape channel if you have not done so already. We're going to be skipping the city shoutouts for the next few episodes. Real quick, make sure you follow all of our social media, everything at the Twisted Cape, specifically our YouTube, because we're doing a whole bunch of stuff there, including our live shows now. Alright, so as always, we start by reading the thickness of my stack, so let's check out Mike's Thickometer. Oh yeah, Mike's Thickometer. Thick like an all-peanut-butter Reese's cup, this week comes in at an 8 out of 10 on Mike's Thickometer. Good God, hot damn, that's thick. Alright, we're going to go ahead and we're going to start this uh, episode here with the Marvel books, starting with Amazing Spider-Man number 53. I gave this a 2.5 out of 5. This issue is a kindred, hairy, and Peter-heavy issue. Revealed through almost a hallucination, Pete finally puts together Kindred's identity. The flashback slash hallucination is kind of a surprise party for when Harry comes back from Europe, like way back when, like it's like the 80s I think this this happened. Hints are dropped left and right, and then Peter finally puts it together when he comes back to life at the end of the issue. It's a quick read, but I have a few issues with it. It's horribly unclear what Harry actually wants, since he references the work that they have to do. We also have no idea how, when, or why Harry made a deal with a demon. Also, I've mentioned this before, but using Mark Bagley instead of Patrick Leeson is a tough ask for me. It's not as good visually, especially since I keep that Ultimate Spider-Man trigger in my brain for Mark Bagley. A few issues left in this story arc, so we'll see where it goes, but I hope it recovers some of that strength that it really had earlier. Next up, we have Captain America, number 25. This book really has two stories. A shorter one at the end is a story about how Cap loves the people of this country, but specifically about his relationship with an immigrant that he met in his moment of crisis and how their lives intersected. It's a love letter to America and Steve Rogers. It's a great story. The main story continues, the story with Red Skull and Alexa Lucan as well as uh, the Carters and Captain America. It's narrated by Sharon Carter, which is great. She walks us through things about Peggy and herself, interspersed with how they divided up the team to disrupt and take down the Red Skull and Alexa Lucan. It also leaves several main players facing tough odds. Peggy and General Ross are set to be executed. Black Widow has been blasted off a helicopter by Alexa at the end of the issue. Oh, end of the story, rather, not the issue. And Winter Soldier is fighting a room full of mercenaries. I feel bad for the mercenaries. However, Sam Wilson's appearance in the book is early on and full of badassery. 
I like this book a good, a good deal, with all the guest stars and Cap just being at the center of the book, but not being the center of the book. I also love the Tim Sale style art in the, in the second story. Worth picking up for sure. Next up, we have Daredevil, number 24. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This issue opens with the fallout of last issue, Foggy bringing in Mike to substitute for Matt. Matt, as Daredevil, eventually confronts Mike after Mike hits on Kirsten, and that doesn't go well. He remains in contact with Tony Stark about buying Hell's Kitchen, but that falls through as well. Matt has a real crisis here and is now looking to fight so he can continue to fight for his home after a conversation at the courthouse with Kirsten. In court, there are a ton of guest stars in the book, like Luke Cage, among others, but Elektra shows up and whispers that she bought Hell's Kitchen to do what he wanted to do. Matt accepts that he can pay his penance now and pleads guilty to secondary manslaughter, which will invariably send him to jail. This issue has a bunch of twists and turns. I'm really curious about how the book will develop with the main character in jail. The book looks good, but I don't think this is the regular artist. Either way, it's beautiful. Scoop this one up, folks, because it's the beginning of something new and awesome. Next up, we have Fantastic Four, number 26. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. Last issue, there was that whole thing with the Forever Gate, and now we start to get some of the consequences of it, as well as some larger points of Dan Slott's run on Fantastic Four. Val and Franklin have painful experiences with the gate. Val, because the prince that she was interested in a few issues back, wants her more as a consort instead of a relationship partner. And Franklin, because he discovers the origin of his quote-unquote mutant powers, it is no longer welcome on Krakoa. The Future Foundation returns via the gate, and they can't close it as a result. Sky and Johnny spend some time dealing with the gate, as well as Johnny's long-storied relationship history. This leads to a fight over him keeping his soul band invisible, and keeps them distracted from aliens crossing onto Earth via the Forever Gate. They're all running from multiple realities that Franklin has created, because the Griever has returned. I like that this issue feels packed, despite being a standard size book and it also deals with many different loose ends that have kind of been dangling it looks pretty but there are definitely some faces in here that will be in a live show in the near future in one of those dem faces segments next up we have fantastic four antithesis number four i gave this a two and two and a half out of five speaking of faces for dem teeth this miniseries comes to an end here Picking up where last issue left off, Reed is taken on the mantle of Galactus and is looking to allow the hunger to overtake him, ridding the universe of the Scourge of Galactus. He sends the Fantastic Four, Silver Surfin, and Galen away so that he can be consumed in peace. With the help of Agatha Harkness, they summon Reed to Earth where they convince him to let go of the Power Cosmic, allowing Galen to reclaim his mantle of Galactus. Before he lets go of the power, Reed leaves a bit of his conscience behind to make Galactus a more ethical entity. I think the story here was so good and added some depth to the Galactus Fantastic Four dynamic. It was hard for me to read with the art, though. It just wasn't for me, if I'm being honest. Like, there's just some stuff in there that, well, you'll see. All right, the next book is Immortal Hulk number 40. I gave this a 4 out of 5. Here's a Joe Fixit slash Baby Hulk story with a fun twist at the end. It starts on the Alpha Flight space station, and most of Alpha Flight is discussing what happened when Hulk blew up. They're interrupted by a Samson-inhabited Sasquatch. Meanwhile, Henry Peter Gyrick gloats over Hulk while Joe is trying to figure out what to do with a broken toddler Hulk. 
Joe explodes out of Hulk's body, knocking out a Gyrick and his bodyguard. Joe comes across Alpha Flight and shoots out a window and rockets to Earth. He transforms into Hulk, obviously, and is greeted on Earth with an angry Ben Grimm on a deserted pier. First of all, this is a rock-solid book every week, and even if it's not at its best, it's a strong entry on the week. The story is tight and engrossing, the art is excellent, it's a can't-miss book normally, and even though this doesn't contain the biggest moments, it's still a very good read. Next up, we have Shang-Chi number three. Uh, three. We gave this a three and a half out of five. When this issue opens, we get a look at the history of the Five Weapons Society. After a morning training session with Sister Dagger and Brother Saber, whose real name is Takashi, the mystery of the figure from the last issue pops up again, and we discover that it's his uncle he's been seeing, not his dad, who leads him to a hidden shrine. Sister Dagger finds him and kicks him out for messing up her shrine. Shang-Chi leaves and is directed to the Louvre, where Sister Hammer is executing a heist. Son of a bitch, I'm in. Sister Dagger and Brother Saber show up to rescue Shang-Chi when he gets into a little bit of trouble, and they do battle with Sister Hammer's forces. Seems like Shang-Chi is partially controlled by one of the Jiangxi, but he uses it to his advantage. He saves Takashi and Sister Dagger, whose real name is Esme, which she reveals at the end of the issue. I like that this moves quickly and addresses several plot points right away. We get history and understand that more of the struggle uh, of this hidden society. And it looks awesome, too. Just a worthwhile book so far. Okay, now we have Spider-Woman number six. I gave this a three out of five. This issue goes from buddy cop comedy to dark rage illness real fucking quick. Initially, Carol Danvers and Jess are rolling through Counter-Earth's moon looking for the high evolutionary. All the while, we see Jess becoming more and more extreme in her tactics, and she's concerning Carol. There's a fun moment when Tony Stark tells them not to blow up his brand new spacecraft, and they promptly get it blown up. It's fucking hilarious. They get to where they think High Evolutionary is, only to find out that he left, which sends Jess into an absolute rage that makes Carol have to step in and hold her back. When they get back to Earth, Jess goes her own way to try to find out more info. This issue ends with a cliffhanger for the King in Black event. I love how this book looks. It has a striking style to it, and it makes you really pay attention. I think the story is cool, but I'm unsure of exactly what is happening, other than Jess's body deteriorating. I want to read more, but I fear that King in Black will disrupt that. Alright, we move on to X-Force, number 14. I give this 4 out of 5. Sadly, this is the episode that will end the X of Swords crossover, but I'm also kind of excited get, to get back to regular mutant fun. Anyway, this issue is a montage of contests. Even Rocky had a montage. Krakoa winds up down a whole lot of points in this contest. There's a focus on a foot race between Captain Avalon and Red Root, and Saturnine clearly intervenes. There are several contests, including a spelling bee and a request to murder a kitten, but the one that sticks out is the one where two combatants, Logan and White Sword, have to see the faces of all that they've murdered. And the first to look away loses. Logan loses, and it's kind of emotional because he now has a moral compass. Finally, Storm has to face off against Death, but she's in the land of the undead without her powers. Storm gets the upper hand, so Death opts to remove his helmet and use his face to end the contest. But like Perseus defeating Medusa, she raises her sword and uses the reflection to deflect the blast, allowing her to cut him, and she allows the vampires in this land of the undead to feast on him. 
Love the book. The art here is great, especially Storm at the end. She's rendered beautifully. And the book is a fun, quick, easy read. It's a good start. Next up, we have Hellions number 6. Gave this a 3.5 out of 5. If you remember, the Hellions team went to Oraco to keep the contest from happening. Almost as a suicide mission. Almost like a squad on a suicide mission. Anyway, they finally arrive, but after the contest has started, so they really can't do what they came to do. They're told this by Tarn the Uncaring, who reveals that Sinister is here for his collection of genes. They're attacked by Tarn's Locust Vile, and some of them are killed almost immediately. Sinister collects genes and gives them to Psylocke to get back to Krakoa. The survivors eventually make it through to Otherworld and back to Krakoa, only to be ambushed and murdered by Sinister, who cries wolf. I love this duplicitous little freak, and I'm curious about what his machinations mean for Krakoa's future. Just great fun. I love how dark the story is also. I largely enjoy the look as well, but in a couple of action scene panels, it just wasn't as good as it could have been. Next up we have Cable number 6. I gave this a 4.5 out of 5. For a book so fraught with despair, it opens with probably the sickest burn I've read in a long time on Krakoa that involves uh, Kate Pride and Sinister. Back in Otherworld, however, there's a Cable versus Bay the Blood Moon, Cypher's new wife, battle. Cable gets the upper hand, but opts not to have Doug watch his new wife die and hesitates. Bay takes advantage of his hesitance and turns the tables and preps to kill him, but Doug steps in and stops her. Saturnine lets it stand and Cable lives. He telepathically reaches out to his parents to let them know what's going on. After a short while, and I mean short, Saturnine cuts the link, which makes Scott and Jean quite motivated to step in and save their son. Gorgon steps up for his fight with White Sword. Arako is up 18-6 at this point, and Gorgon has to kill all of 100 of White Sword's men, and then to fight him. Gorgon manages to kill 13, giving Krakoa a 1918 lead, but he's gravely injured, and White Sword steps in and ends him, tying up the score. Apocalypse says to Magic, Cable, and Cypher, this is how a mutant dies, children. That ends up being the biggest standout moment from this moment-packed issue. Then, Apocalypse and Genesis grab their swords and prepare to face off. This issue does a lot. It's a really good issue and is among the best in the whole event. Next up, we have the direct continuance here in X-Men 15. I gave this one also a 4.5 out of 5. This issue is a story on two fronts. The Apocalypse Genesis fight and Scott and Jean talking to the Quiet Council on Krakoa about their plan to rescue their friends. The Scott and Jean rescue mission is the bulk of the issue, and rightfully so. There are a lot of politics at play here for Krakoa, but ultimately Scott's leadership and places the leader of the X-Men is fully on display here, and Hickman really nails these exchanges. Xavier and Magneto are both proud of the leaders that Scott and Jean have become. On Otherworld, Apocalypse and Genesis square off, as Genesis has removed the helmet she's needed to wear. Genesis shatters Apocalypse's sword, and offers him an opportunity to yield, which of course he refuses. They meet in battle again, and Genesis is mortally wounded, but because this battle's to the death, Apocalypse says he doesn't want this. Saturnine, however, demands a victor. Genesis is put on the Annihilation Helmet, which heals her, and she says that nothing is settled. I love the layout and execution of this issue. I love the politics of this issue. The battle sequences are tense, and it's just amazing. Just like Cable, this issue is towards the top of this event. 
Next, we have Excalibur number 15. I give this a three and a half out of five. Things have turned in this issue. The forces of Haraco have fully invaded Otherworld, and a small group of X-Men are present. Genesis seems poised to strike down Apocalypse, and Storm intervenes with her storm cloud, holding off the forces of Araco for the time being. White Sword leaves the Araco side, and Babe Blood Moon goes to find her husband. Meanwhile, Saturnine begins to put together a box of shards with Shogo watching over her shoulder. Shogo is the dragon that's Jubilee's kid. B basically kidnaps Doug as the X-Men prepare to stand against the armies of Ameth. Just as Aurora's storm weakens, Jubilee shows up with the priestesses of the green to help stop the invasion. They talk about getting back to the Citadel and getting Shogo back before we get a scene of Doug convincing B to go back and fight with him and his mutant family. Again, the mutants are surrounded by the forces of Ameth and it looks really bad. Finally, Saturday completes her puzzle and it's Betsy Braddock still holding the Starlight Sword, which it seems Saturnine really wanted to get her hands on. While this issue upped the stakes, I felt like it was more difficult to get through than the previous two issues. That's not to say it wasn't enjoyable. There are definitely some really badass moments here, but the story really feels just disjointed from the last issue. I don't know how we got from there to here, and there's no filler issue or information in between. The thick black lines that are that are used in the art of this issue, however, are great. It gives a way to give things so much definition and depth. Okay, now we're going to jump to X of Swords, Destruction Number 1. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. This is the final issue in this segment, the final issue of the crossover. There are some unexpected pieces here, like Saturnine being the center of the issue. Chess moves are made right away. The Captain Britain Corps returns, followed up by a war summoning the armies of Ameth. Cable reaches out to his parents and Magic after a conversation with Saturnine, and an army of X-Men rolls out onto the battlefield. Apocalypse and Genesis struggle for control of the helmet, and more importantly, to be reunited. The Summers family go back to the ship from the beginning of the series, and Cable opens the portal to, the, to that horde of alien machines, which attacks the armies of Ameth. Amidst the struggle, Apocalypse takes the Annihilation helmet, from Genesis and ultimately surrenders, yielding control of Ameth to Saturnine. She remakes the helmet into a staff and gives it back to Genesis. Saturnine then decrees and exchange to help keep the peace, essentially. Genesis chooses Apocalypse, basically as her consort, and Apocalypse speaks for Krakoa, and he sends the island of Arako. So now Krakoa and Arako will now be reunited. Everyone leaves, and Apocalypse tells Cyclops to tell the Professor and Magneto that he will see them again. Saturnine then talks about all that she saw in advance, many of which seem to be plot points for the future of these X-Books, particularly the breaking of the Quiet Council, as well as other more subtle plot points. It ends with Saturnine getting everything she needed, but not what she wants, as she looks at Jamie Braddock. Some strong moments show up in this issue, but it's largely a wrap-up issue. It doesn't end as strong as I'd like, but it does tie up some loose ends. I'm curious to see how these books start up again with a new and different status quo as a result of this tournament. How will the other stories pick up again? Most importantly, how will Excalibur look without Apocalypse? I guess time will tell. Alright, we're going to take a quick break and then jump into these DC books! Hey everybody, Sam here from the Twisted Cape. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out the Twisted Capes Tee Public page, which we have 
live right now for you to purchase any and all of your clothing needs with Twisted Cape logos on them. We got shirts, socks, maybe. Wow. We got other shirts with hoods on them and they have longer sleeves. So warm. We got everything you could ever want with Twisted Cape logos on them. So, again, please be sure to check out the Twisted Capes T Public page. Check out the link in the description and be sure to pick up your favorite stuff right now. Thanks, everybody. And now, back to Mike's Thick Stack. Oh, yeah. Nice big stretch for you there as we jump into these DC books, starting with Action Comics number 1027. I gave this a 3 out of 5. The latest issue of the House of Kent storyline is an action-packed book. From Lois being taken by the FBI to Red Cloud being taken down by the K-Squad, but not before Clark is knocked out. He's caught by Kara, while the others focus on keeping Red Cloud off balance. They corral her into the Phantom Zone, where they offer to take her to a real prison or leave her here to pay her penance for committing murder. Meanwhile, Marisol Leon slips away just as the FBI agent Chase realizes that Lois is from another dimension, as is Leon, and that Leon is now in the wind. Now in jail, Red Cloud gets a letter from Leon basically ripping her apart the entire time and just dunking on her over and over again. Clark has a dark thought about destroying Star Labs because basically everything bad has come out of Star Labs, but thinks better of it while Brainiac 5 goes back to the future. The rest of the family books it back to the Daily Planet after hearing Lois say the code word, which is Smallville, just so they can find out that Jimmy Olsen now owns the Daily Planet in Leon's absence. I like how some threads got tied up while others were intentionally left dangling. I will say that this issue isn't the best John Romita Jr. issue. Some parts have a little left to be desired. Moving on to Batman number 103, I gave this a 3 out of 5 as well. Speaking of action pack, this issue has a lot going on. The flashback in the beginning shows how opposed Bruce and Ghostmaker are and how long they've been going at it. Back in the present day, Oracle's trying to find out who Ghostmaker is, but Bruce explains she'll never find him. Ghostmaker brags about the things he's done before he even got off the plane, and Batman tells Balfam, uh, who's clown killer, to run. Meanwhile, Harley's getting settled into her new apartment, which is right next to the fight that's going on. Uh, because Bao was trying to kill Harley, and she talks to a plant trying to communicate with Ivy. Bao tries to fight Harley, but she evades him and eventually puts him down and ties him up when Batman crashes into her apartment, stabbed through with two swords. Ghostmaker tranquilizes her and Clown Killer. As Batman begins to recover from being stabbed with two swords and thrown through a window, he explains to Ghostmaker that he's messed up on all the cases that he tried to help on, which leads Ghostmaker to tranquilize Batman as well. I like this issue better than others, but I'm still not sure about the character Clown Killer playing such a central role. It's beautifully illustrated, and the action sequences really pop. I'm curious to see where this will lead, but I'm hoping it, it gets better than it has been. Now we have Batman Superman number 14. I gave this a 3 out of 5. The final issue in this story arc starts with Superman, Batman, Steel, and Batwoman fighting a bunch of robots, and then going back to Earth to stop the combo robot. Superman confronts him physically while Steel sends Batman into the program and Batwoman takes some time to beat down every robot on Earth. Batman and Superman manage to talk the combo robot down and shut itself off. After all, it's kind of a silly story, but sometimes that's necessary. 
it's generally a good looking book, but the story arc winds up being essentially filler. Hopefully the next arc is better. Okay, now we have Dark Knight's Death Metal number 5. I gave this a 4 out of 5. There are revelations of plenty in this issue. The Justice League is downed, and Diana is being taunted by the Robin King when the Darkest Knight calls him away and instructs Castlebat to kill them. That battle doesn't go well until they're rescued by Lex Luthor and the Legion of Doom. When Perpetua and the Darkest Knight begin to fight, Lex lays out his plan that he's been working on for months. Diana asks Bruce and Clark to confess what they've been holding back, because she can tell something's off. Batman admits that he's dead, and has been since that first Perpetua battle, and has been sustained by a Black Lantern ring. Superman admits that his transformation will not stop, but they're going to do their part no matter what. They decide to destroy the Earth, and when they do, it gets Darkest Knight's attention, and he sends multiple Earths to stop the League and the Legion from destroying this Earth. I liked how this developed, and I know that it's almost over. It's been as fun and ridiculous as advertised. Thankfully, this issue makes a few of the tie-ins worthwhile. Obviously, the art here is incredible, but I'm really hoping that this story sticks in landing. Next up, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, The Multiverse Who Laughs, number one, which is a tie-in. I gave this a two and a half out of five. This is another collection of stories as a death metal tie-in. The first story is a darker what-if style story as told by the Robin King. The second story centers on Zaz and is probably the best story in the entire book. He plots to kill his way out of Arkham, but is stopped by Gottlieb, the person in charge, who is also taking inmates and experimenting on them, as well as transforming them. If that's not happening, they're just getting killed. Surprisingly, this story is written by Patton Oswald, which is really good. The next story is a messed up super pet story where everyone on Earth dies and is taken over by a virus, and that even eventually turns on them. The speedy next story is a quick version of Earth where the Guardians take over and use the Lanterns as enforcers. Ollie ends up, Ollie, the Green Lantern, Ollie ends up rescuing kids and comes across Hal Jordan, who he fights as the story ends. Finally, there's a steel story where he rescues a young Jean-Paul Valley from a fear toxin, but then goes back to help more people after he asks him to take him under his wing. Again, this didn't really do anything for me personally. The art's cool. That Patton Oswald story is awesome, but the rest is meh. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1031. I gave this a 4 out of 5. There are twists and turns in here. There are three concurrent stories, Batman and Damien, Bat Family in the Mirror, and a secret story. First of all, Damien is hunting down leads from Batman's Black Book. Try saying that three times fast. It's taking him to Detective Podolsky, who he ties up and leaves for the cops. The Mirror begins to march Gotham residents and incite them into causing an incident to stop vigilantes from roaming their streets. The Bat Family intervenes and then is mysteriously tranquilized and taken. Batman fights the mirror, and the mirror seemingly takes his own life. Batman explains to the crowd why they should go home as the secret story starts to unfold. Tommy Elliot has possession of the Bat family and uses them to send Bruce off the trail. Detective Podolsky turns out to be Tommy's sister. This really helps sell the story to me. I can't wait to keep this going. I love the art style of this book, too. It's different looking than what we largely see with Batman, which is why it's great. Okay, moving to Flash, number 766. I gave this a 3 out of 5. Here's the end of this Dr. Alchemy storyline, and I'm pretty happy about it. Barry gets his ass kicked early on in this issue by Alchemy, and then gets the chance to regroup. 
Barry has been told to create a philosopher's stone or people would be hurt. He makes it and alchemy turns buildings into acid in order to force Barry into using it. Barry uses it, but it now makes him subject to Albert Desmond, who has been controlling them the whole time. Barry uses the Lyseum to protect himself and turns alchemy into stone and then drops his ass in jail. Barry seemingly has made up his mind by, by the end of this issue about proposing to Iris finally. God damn it. Like, this thing has been dragging out forever. Like, just do it, dude. Do it. Shit or get off the pot. Anyway, alchemy is being stored at Iron Heights as a statue, which is kind of funny. The issue ends better than it was throughout the story arc, but it seemed more like a filler arc than anything else, as well as an excuse to get Barry ready to propose. I'm not crazy about the art, but it does the job. Next up, we have Justice League number 57. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. This issue centers on Nightwing and his possible place in the Justice League going forward. After an early issue scuffle with the Legion of Doom, Nightwing leads both his Justice League and the Legion of Doom into taking down the Omega Knight. He rallies all corners in a way that allows them to work side by side. It leads right up to Death Metal number 5, but it feels like a nice bow on the story arc. I'm curious if they're thinking about adding one of the OG Titans to the Justice League roster. I'd really enjoy that. The art here continues to be awesome with the character redesigns. I, I love how it's gone overall. Next, we have Justice League Dark number 28. I gave this a 4 out of 5. The beginning of this issue picks up right where last issue left off. A Zatanna upside down man body horror image. Zatanna takes him in and casts him out. And Wonder Woman finishes the job. I loved how badass she is and how helpless she made him after he stalked this team for two years of the series. The rest of this issue makes some wrap up. Detective Chimp gets a new sword. Langstrom discovers that Swamp Thing still exists somewhere in the green. And Zatanna is reunited with Zatara, who takes on John Constantine's price, allowing him to be resurrected. This book then serves as a lead-in to Endless Winter. I like how this put a bow on so much. Almost like a true send-off for the book. This book looks amazing, especially the horror bits. If there's a natural place to step away from this book, it's here. Next up, we have Nightwing number 76. I gave this a 3 out of 5. Here we get the conclusion to the 20-plus issue run that dealt with Rick Grayson. It's an intense battle, and Nightwing comes out on top. Nightwing also saves his life and then goes off to find B. Knowing that KG Beast is going to survive, Dick decides to cut things off with B, especially with certain memories of Bruce telling him that they can't ever have a normal life. It's a full-on 180 for him, considering the previous issue and the conversation they have there. He says he hopes they can remain friends, and she says that she doesn't want to see him again, and rightfully so. Dick is hurting from this, but to him it makes sense. To me, it doesn't. Why wouldn't you be honest with her after everything you just went through? Seems short-sighted to me. There's only one more issue with this creative team, but I think the next story arc will be massive. Again, this issue felt like a natural conclusion point. Next up, we have Rorschach, number two. I gave this a three and a half out of five. Parts of the mystery continue to unravel in this issue. This book goes back and forth between flashbacks and present day to try to link Will Myerson to the assassination attempt in the first issue. We know that he was a comic book artist looking to get into something a little more mature than pirate comics. He goes on a date with a woman in his building named Alma and gets horribly rejected. 
Her eventual husband, who she tells about this kind of date, teases and bullies Will for the majority of their adult lives. The detective, who is our anchor, really, uncovers piece by piece that Alma's husband has a heart attack after the break-in by this new Rorschach and Lara Cummings. This one is another that is confusing now, but may change as it goes on. I feel like there are pieces to a puzzle that I haven't quite seen yet. I like the look, but I don't love it all the time. There are panels that grab me, but others that don't do much for me. I hope this is as ambitious and as good as I think it could be, but I'm truly concerned that the series fizzles late. Next up, we have Teen Titans number 47. I give this a 3 out of 5. Joystick hounds the Teen Titans for the end of this story arc. He gets the upper hand, but is beaten by the Teen Titans' bond, essentially. Red Arrow shoots Kid Flash with an electric arrow, helping her snap out of it, but not him. He presses the attack again, but Red Arrow shoots an explosive arrow, which demolishes part of the building, stopping Kid Flash, and, like, the rest of them, too. They dig out of the rubble, and Wallace and Emiko finally share a kiss, which provides a bit of comedy by Crush and Roundhouse. Those two actually find Robin's last note, which has a set of coordinates. When they get there, the team finds themselves face-to-face with the issue's narrator, Nightwing. Dick and the Titans invite the Teen Titans to Titan's Tower. Again, say that one five times fast. Not easy. Again, this is a nice bow on the story threads that have been running here for quite some time. If the future has a combo of the teams, I'm all in. The art on this is an issue for me at times. There's a distinct lack of definition in up-close panels that should have more detail, which is a little frustrating for me. We'll see how this develops if this book continues. Finally, we have Wonder Woman number 767. I gave this a 2 out of 5. In the turn everyone and their little brother saw coming, Max Lord turned on Diana. Shocking. In a battle, he tries to get Diana to kill herself, but is wildly unsuccessful. She wins the battle, taunting him for being a privileged, spoiled rich kid, and then sends him right back to prison. Diana tells all this to Etta, who would have given anything to see his face to know that he was beaten. Etta also recommends that Diana take the night off and decompress a little as Max gets settled into his new prison cell. He's then stabbed by Liar Liar and presumably killed. My problem with this issue is that it's so predictable that it's not as impactful as it sets out to be. Admittedly, the art of Diana in battle in this issue is incredible. She's so powerful and awesome, and some of the splash pages make that known. I just wish the story had measured up, but I think that's an issue because of the desire to link up to the release of Wonder Woman 1984 and reintroduce, I guess, Max Lord. Okay, that's all the time we have. Real quick, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter, at SpiderMike29. Looking ahead to the next episode, I'm looking forward to talking about Batman, Catwoman number one, Endless Winter number one, and DC number six on the DC side. On the Marvel side, talk about Savage Avengers 15, King and Black number one, Thor number 10, and Daredevil number 25. We got some stuff on YouTube now, especially our live shows, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any of our content. We have some merch on TeePublic, as you've likely just heard. And just make sure you check the link in our show notes to get your hands on some of that sweet, sweet gear. That is all the time we have for this week. Of course, make sure you subscribe to The Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform, or just listen on thetwistedcape.com. We're at The Twisted Cape, no spaces, on every social media platform. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Make sure you tune in to our weekly show on Thursdays now 
on the Twisted Capes uh, YouTube page or on the website, thetwistedcape.com slash livestream, and live in them comments. We go over them during and at the end of each show. Finally, feel free to shoot us feedback on this show to thetwistedcape at gmail.com and make sure you use the subject line MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, lock the door, pull out the phone, stay safe, wear a mask, stay twisted. Fix that.